Yeah, in addition to uh, graduating together five years ago, uh, Dr. Anderson and I shared an award. Uh, he was in a different department than I was, which having th thought about that a little bit this morning, it's a little bit intimidating standing in front of a Hebrew prof and uh, preaching an Old Testament text, but that's my goal. Anyway. Uh, so I went to the website in order to, know, to find out a little bit about the church, and lo and behold, my friend John Graham is the face of the church. At least his face is front and center on the website. Uh, I miss John. Uh, we didn't spend a whole lot of time together while he was here. In fact, we probably had more political conversations since he left than when he was. <laughs> I grew up in a Bible-believing home in a Bible-believing church in which um, dispensationalism was the system through which the scripture was read. Uh, somewhere along the line, I learned that, that there's a song that other Christians sing that we were never allowed to sing because it's what Presbyterians believe and what Methodists believe. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons. You know that song? I thought you were dispensationalist. I married my wife, who's a Methodist, and she had no idea what that, she, she didn't know that song either. And then we moved to Texas and became Baptists, and we both learned that it's an appropriate song to sing. There's another song about Abraham you might not have heard or might not remember. Father Abraham had many wives. Many wives had Father Abraham. Sarah's one of them, and Hagar too, and Keturah, and a whole bunch of concubines. <laughs> Abraham is a significant figure in the biblical story for any number of reasons. He is the one that God chose through whom to bless not simply um, Israel, but to bless all peoples on earth. Uh, he is, according to the Apostle Paul, the father of all who believe. He is not an Israelite. He's a Gentile. He is the father, Paul argues, of both Jews and Gentiles. We first meet Abraham. Actually, his name is Abram in the early chapters of Genesis. We first meet him in chapter 11. His name is changed by God in chapter 17. We also meet his wife, his first wife, Sarah, there. His second wife appears in Genesis 16, our text for today. And then sometime later, presumably after the death of Sarah, although that's not clear, in chapter 25, we are introduced to his third wife, Keturah, through whom he had not one. His first wife and his second wife each produced one child. Keturah produces six sons, maybe some daughters. And then Moses tells us in chapter 25, he had a lot of other sons by concubines. So we don't know how many children the father Abraham fathered, but it's more than the two that get a great deal of attention in the biblical story. This is not a story, uh, this is not a sermon rather about the morality of Abraham's sex life. That's the subject for another day. But I think understanding that about Abraham is important for the background of Genesis chapter 16. I'm assuming a fairly familiar story, but let me read the first part of it uh, as we begin. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, <clears throat> had borne him no children, significant because 
In chapter 15, God had repeated the promise to Abraham that you will be the father of many descendants as the stars in the sky, too many to count. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abram agreed to what Sarah had said. So after Abram had been living in the land of Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now, she, now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Abram's response is chilling. Your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. And then Sarah mistreated Hagar. That's the understatement of the day. Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Like all good stories, Genesis 16 revolves around conflict. And it's a story that's told without a great deal of character development, although we know a little bit about Abraham before this event happens. It's told without a great deal of development of the plot. It's a, here it is in stark detail. It revolves around Sarah. She is the first character mentioned. She is the main character in the first act of the story. She's right. Uh, th that she has been unable to have children is because God has prevented her from having children. Important, because in the story of Abraham, the promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many peoples, the father of many nations, he must be able to produce children. So as was common in the culture of her day, Sarah did what would have made sense to her. In the culture of the day, it was not at all uncommon for a barren wife to give a slave to her husband in order to raise up a child. But that it was a common cultural practice doesn't excuse her or Abraham at all. Because rather than trusting God to do what he had promised he would do, Abram and Sarah try to help him. They provide a way that God's promise could be fulfilled. Now, at this point in the story, it's important that we don't be hypercritical of either one of them because the, 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 the process and the task of following God is one that requires us to step out in faith. Our faith is not passive. It actually works. And that to misunderstand this would be to say it's wrong to take medicine. You should just pray. To misunderstand this would say it's, it's wrong to start your car. God, just pray and God would start. No, there, there is a responsibility that we have. And we have a responsibility to make wise choices. But it seems fairly clear from the way this story unfolds and the way the narrator tells the story that we are to understand that this is not behavior that should be emulated. Who is Hagar? She's identified as an Egyptian. 
and a slave. If she's from Egypt, she's from Africa. She's African. Father Abraham owns an African slave. Let's sink in just for a moment or two. Long before Europeans kidnapped Africans and took them to use as slaves, long before the Brits did that, and long before the colonials, the colonies in America, Father Abraham, the father of all who believed, owned an African slave. Where did she come from? It's not too hard. There's not a great deal of speculation. She's from Egypt. Father Abraham, because of the, uh, the famine in the land of Canaan, goes down to Egypt. So he comes out with this African Egyptian slave. Maybe he purchased her. Maybe Pharaoh gifted her. However he got her, she is his property. It's also interesting that her name is not Egyptian. We don't know what her name was. Her name was apparently changed by her owner to a Semitic name, Hagar. She's property. She has no home, no family, no identity, and no name. She is a piece of property, chattel slavery in Genesis 16. As the story unfolds, we who know the Bible hear the echoes of Genesis 3. The literary illusions are clear. The fall is reenacted. Sarah gives her slave to Abram. Abram agrees. He takes her as his wife. Then then repeats that Hagar was an Egyptian slave, but also adds a time marker. They had been living in the land for, of Canaan for 10 years. Abram is 75. Genesis 12 says when he sets out for the land of Canaan, they've been in the land of Canaan. He's now, 70. He's now 85. Sarah, who's 10 years younger, would be 75. For a number of years, I taught, um, and it's a number of years before she has a, a child, finally. For a number of years, I taught senior adults. And increasingly, I'm getting into the age group of the people I taught. Uh, it was kind of fun to be able to turn around and see the sign that says 65 to 72. And most of the people were above 72 because this was the Baptist church, and nobody ever promotes to the next class. I'm pretty close to that age now. So I, I used to, I love telling the story of Abram and Sarah to that group. And so I would tell the women, there's still hope. And they would laugh. That's exactly right. Just like in, so like Adam, who took the fruit offered by his wife and ate, Abram takes the fruit offered by his wife and ate. He sleeps with her, and she conceives. And just like in Genesis 3, the two of them are co-conspirators not only in the act, but they are co-conspirators in the response to the act. They play the blame game, and they come up with a plan by which they can resolve the problem. Hagar's pregnant. The slave wife has now been promoted because she is able to produce what Sarah is not. 
See, remember that plan was, I'll give you her and she'll raise up a child for me? Mm, that plan didn't work really well because now she is able to do what Sarah is not. And so her position in the household has been elevated, this Egyptian slave woman. She blames Abram. Abram responds with, you do whatever you think is best. That, that's chilling. And it's chilling for any number of reasons. It is highly unlikely that Abram is unaware how she will respond. But even if he is unaware of how she will respond, he watches as his first wife mistreats the second wife. That's an English word that sounds mild. This is the word that's used to describe the treatment of the Israelites by the Egyptians. This is a term of oppression. She oppressed her. And if Abram is unaware that that's what will happen, and he watches it happen, and he watches as his pregnant wife runs away into the wilderness, into the desert, pregnant and alone. And Abram doesn't Just like in the book of Job, and just like throughout the scriptures, we know things that the characters in the story don't know. All Abram knows is that his wife is pregnant and he doesn't care. We know his wife is pregnant with a son. And Abram doesn't care. But God. The story now shifts. Sarah is no longer the major character. Abram is no longer relevant to the story. The story now shifts. And this enigmatic character, identified in verse 7 as the angel of the Lord, found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that's beside the road to Shur. And she said, Hagar... Slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. And the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant. You are now with child. You will give birth to a son and you shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. And then she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. The one who spoke to her is not merely a messenger of the Lord. The one who spoke to her is the Lord himself. And she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. 
For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is why the place is called Behir Lahoi Roy, which means the well of the one who sees me. And Moses, who wrote this, tells us it is still known by that name to this day, 500 years later, named by this African slave. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael, the angel of the Lord. The Lord himself found her. Not surprising, because that's what the Lord does. That's what the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob does. That's what Jesus tells us he came to do, to seek and to save those who are lost. The Lord seeks and saves the lost. He found her because he was looking for her. When he found her, he called her by name, asks where she came from and where she is going, not because he doesn't know any more than when God shows up in the garden and says, Adam, where are you? He's looking for information. (laughs) The Lord of heaven and earth knows who she is, knows where she came from, knows why she's here, and knows where she's intending to go, even though she probably doesn't. She's on her way down toward Egypt. She'll never make it as an alone pregnant woman. She responds, I'm running away from my mistress. And the Lord's response is, go back to her and submit to her. Go back and submit. Don't you know what she did to me? Don't you know how she mistreated me? Don't you know what I'm going to face if I go back? This text has been used throughout the history of interpretation to justify sending an abused spouse or an abused child back into an abusive relationship. No. If that isn't clear enough, no. If that isn't clear enough, no. Unless you're willing to do what the Lord does. You're going to send an abused spouse or child back into the abuse. You better go with them. That's what the Lord does. He cares for her. He protects her. He looks out for her. He goes with her when she goes back. How do I know that? Listen to what, listen to what the Lord says. I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The only way this can be true is if he protects her. The only way this can be true is if he cares for her. The only way this can be true is if he looks out for her and keeps her from being treated like she was before she left. Oh, and by the way, that's exactly the promise that God made to Abram. I will make your descendants so great they cannot be counted. Then the angel says, you are with with child. You will give birth to a son. You will name him Ishmael because the Lord has heard of your mystery, of of your misery. He will be a wild donkey, will live alone in hostility. God is with you and will be with your son. A couple of uh, millennia or so later in the biblical story, another young woman hears those words. These are the words that the angel uses to announce the birth of the Messiah to Mary. You will be with child. You will, you will give him this name. 
And we move a little further in that story in Luke chapter 2. Remember the testimony of Simeon? And a sword will pierce your soul. This one will be a wild donkey. I don't think a wild donkey here is in any way pejorative of the animal. Uh, A wild donkey is an animal who lives alone in hostility to the east of his brothers and sisters. But that's not the most surprising part of this story. The most surprising part of this story is the creator of the universe who gives himself names. The creator of the universe who names the things that he created, the day and the night, the land and the sea and the water who designates the responsibility to Adam, who's created in his image and likeness, to demonstrate his authority over the the plants on the earth and the the creatures that, that swim in the sea and the creatures that fly in the sky and the animals that live on the earth. This God allows himself to be named by an African slave of Father Abraham. It's not just what she names him, as significant as that is, and it's incredibly significant. You are the God who sees me. This woman who is invisible in the household of Father Abraham, this woman who sleeps with Abraham, who is his wife and is invisible to him. Nobody cares about her, but the God who sees me does. And God accepts that name. It's the only time in the biblical story and the only time in human history that a creature has had the privilege to name God. A name that is so important in the story that Moses, almost 500 years later, says that this is the name of that place even to this day. Bahir Lahai Roy. The, the well of the God who sees me. Unlike Adam and Eve, and unlike Abraham, and just like Jesus, who at the end of Luke 2 returns with his parents and is obedient to them, Hagar does exactly what the Lord tells her to do. She returned to her husband. And when she returned to her husband, she declared to him, I'm I'm bearing a son, and his name is Ishmael. You don't, which means God hears. So every time Abram hears his son's name, every time he calls his son's name, he is reminded that God intervened and preserved and protected his life. So why is the story in the Bible? As a morality tale? to give us an example of how we ought to live, how we should not live. Now, of course, everything that happened, Paul says, in the Old Testament is our types or examples for us. So there, there's some value in seeing it that way. Do, is this a hero or an anti-hero story? I think there's some value in those applications too. But how does this story advance the biblical story of redemption. This great story that God has written and is writing of a world that he created good. And he created caretakers to provide, to care for that world. And they rebelled against him and introduced into this good world death and decay and deception and destruction. 
but God is not through with his world, and God acts redemptively in the midst of this world, that one day he will recreate the heavens and the earth, a new heaven and a new earth. And right in the middle of that story, not literally so, but in the middle of that story, God himself condescends to take on flesh to become one of us, to submit himself to the forces of evil. He lays down his life to take it back again. How does the Hagar story advance the biblical story? Well, first, we are introduced here for the very first time explicitly to a major biblical theme that God is concerned about the other, that God is concerned about the invisible, that God is concerned about those that we don't see, that God is a God who cares about the fatherless, the widows, the orphans, and the strangers. Yet we must also acknowledge that God's ways are not our ways, that God doesn't always intervene. He doesn't always protect. It's an amazing story, a highly unusual story of a God who goes out of his way to protect this slave wife of Abram when Abram doesn't care. But you've lived long enough on the planet to know that God doesn't always do that. When he does, we praise him. When he doesn't, we lament, which is another form of praise. We also see in this story that God's plan is bigger than Abram. It's bigger than, that Abram's seed is bigger than Abram thinks it will be. When God says to Abram, and I think this explains why God protects her. When God says to Abram, I will bless your seed. I will bless all peoples through you. That's what God means. That his plan is so much bigger than one of Abram's descendants. His plan is to bless all peoples. And he shows that that's what he's doing here with Hagar. But God doesn't let Abram off the hook. Abram thinks, I, I believe, that his problem has solved when Hagar leaves. Now there once again is peace in his camp and everything's perfectly fine. But God stops her and sends her back. And Abram has to live with the consequences of his action. Again, this text should never be used to send an abused back into an abusive situation unless you go with her to protect her. I'd love to say, and actually did write down, that Abram is changed by this relationship with Hagar, but it's a relatively minor change because later, after the second son is born, there's conflict again. That time, at least Abram asks God for permission before he sends her away. But once again, he sends his wife and son into the wilderness to die. And once again, God appears and protects her. I think that's the point of this story, that we should be like God, that we should be caring for the widows and orphans and the poor and the strangers and the other, that is not a political statement at all. 
It's a statement about the responsibility of the church to be like God, to care for the weak, to care for the disenfranchised, to care for the oppressed, to care for the abused, to, to be a, this will sound like a political statement, to be a sanctuary, but that's, that's a really good word long before it became politicized. To be a sanctuary, to be a place where people can come and know they will be safe. We must be the eyes of the God who sees. We must be the eyes of the God who sees me. And finally, and maybe most shocking, in this story, who is it who is most like God? Who is the godly character? Who is the godlike character? Who is the character in the story to be emulated? Not Abraham. It's the African slave woman who's the Christ figure in this story. It's the African slave woman who is godly in this story. It's the African slave woman who obeys God, who does exactly what God tells her to do. When the angel says, go back to Abram, that's what she does. Because that's what you do if the God of the universe gives you a command. So what does it look like to be like Jesus? In this story, it means to look like Hagar.